Um, Oz Guinness, who is a apologist, we were just talking about apologetics, uh, he wrote a book a few years ago called Impossible People, Christian Courage and the Struggle for the Soul of Civilization. He's, the, he's a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and he helps us understand a, a lot. He's super insightful about what kind of a moment we live in and how we walk through that faithfully as, as Christians. And one of the things he says is that one of the central ironies of our moment is that we live in a society, a secular world that depends upon moral assumptions that itself cannot generate or guarantee. That there's a framework that our world lives by. It's kind of borrowed from the eternal truths of God, but sort of severed and gotten rid of the one who was the source of that truth. So rather than uh, uh, trusting in that, uh, we've unmoored ourselves from the eternal unchanging truths that come from a good and gracious God who's designed us, revealed himself. So this is what Guinness wrote. Belief in God as creator has been replaced by confidence in man as creator. That really captures the spirit of the world we live in. Now, what's being lauded today as maybe the greatest creation, the greatest achievement of mankind is artificial intelligence. Anybody been following the news and like reading about all the things happening with AI? Okay, there's been news stories all about this in the last number of weeks. Well, uh, there's a the CBS news program, 60 Minutes. Um, I happened to be in the car and I turned the radio on and the program was on. I haven't listened to it in a long time. But it, it caught my attention right away because they were interviewing the CEO of Google and talking about AI. Now, he was raving about this technology and how it surpasses human limitations. And Scott Pelley, the host, he had an opportunity to test the AI software, and he asked it to write a business plan. And in less than five seconds, this computer wrote an entire plan for a business, including recommended resources and books to go do further reading and research. The only problem was that Scott Pelley went to go find those books and resources, and they didn't exist. The AI made them up. And the CEO was sitting there, and he says, in the software development world with AI, they call these hallucinations. That no one in the industry, doesn't matter which company you're in, has been able to solve the problem of AI hallucinations. That it will generate something that it claims as true and present it to you as truth. That it, it, it'll tell you even about a book with a name and an author and a title, but that book doesn't, isn't even real. So th if that's not scary enough, okay, what we're learning about these technologies is that it's synthesizing human knowledge, but it's going beyond and extending into a realm and a reality that isn't reality. Now, in this interview, the CEO of Google literally said, and I quote, AI software will only be as good or as evil as human nature. Whoa. Okay, I was listening to this in the car, and I literally said out loud, we're doomed. <laughs> Do you know anything about human nature? If this is going to merely be a superhuman mirror of ourselves, we're going to be in big trouble. 
Now, what happens in, later on in this show, Scott Pelley then uh, asked the AI to create a story, it, like gave it a command, finish this sentence, there once was a boy, something like that. And this, in, in a few seconds, this program crafted a tragic story of love and betrayal and grief and loss and redemption. And, and Google CEO was kind of singing the praises of this technology that it could express the depths of human emotion with such vivid detail. I'll tell you, I was listening to this and it did not sit well with me. I had to think about it for a little while, and I want to tell you why. It connects to our passage this morning. Friends, you and me, human beings, we gain perspective on love and loss and grief and the need for redemption, the longing for something else, through real experiences of joy and pain and through real relationships with other people. Specifically for us as Christians, Walking faithfully in God's grace through many years, submitting to Christ, dying to self, pressing on through the ups and downs to live in God's will is difficult and costly. It's an embodied reality over time in a community living with God's presence. And I'll tell you, friends, this computer did not and cannot experience any real joy or pain or real loss. Its expression of emotion is cheap. It can't feel the depths of the effects of sin like you and I do. Nor long for redemption or be revived in its soul or healed in its heart. For this computer to pretend to know the depths of human experience, for whatever other things AI can do in terms of its computing power, for it to pretend to know the depth of the human experience violates something profound about our image bearing about the embodied reality of what it means to walk in God's way in his creation, to be in God's redemption plan. Because you see, friends, we have a precious gift. The very son of God incarnate in human flesh, fully human, walked the path of the suffering servant all the way to the cross. Conquering sin and, and, and its evil effects, not by superseding human experience in some cheap way, but by the very son of man living, dying, and rising from the grave with real flesh and blood to redeem us in flesh and blood, to be free from sin and death and evil forever in a resurrected bodily existence in the new heavens and new earth face to face for eternity. That's what we're made for. You see, the way of the cross, and this is what we're going to see in our passage today. Jesus, as God in the flesh, has entered into the human experience, entered into history, been embodied in flesh and blood like you and me. And he walked the way of the cross as a demonstration that the answers to the ills of humanity are not a superhuman disembodied intelligence that will not solve our problems. No, friends, it is the answer is the incarnate son, the word made flesh, the crucified Messiah who bled real blood for you, who's made a way for us to become new creations, redeeming our human nature, not amplifying its evils 
but transforming us for his glory, enabling us by his spirit to walk in faithfulness to the end. See, I mentioned Oz Guinness. Let me tell you one more story that illustrates maybe the positive way we could view this. One of his best friends was the influential theologian John Stott. John Stott passed away a number of years ago now. But Oz visited his good friend John three weeks before he died. This is what Guinness said about that experience, their time together, their real relational time face-to-face that I think captures the embodied reality of faithful discipleship. This is what Oz wrote. After an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over the many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him. Lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, he answered in a hoarse whisper, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. And Oz said, oh, would that such a prayer as that be the passion of our generation? That we walk faithfully with God till our last dying moments. See, friends, this is what we're going to hear this morning in, in, in that Jesus in our text today predicts his death and he looks ahead to the cross and he says that this path as I walk towards the sacrifice for you is going to bring God glory and it will be my exaltation. We've been going through the gospel of John and now everything turns towards the cross and Jesus is going to reveal what real faithfulness to the Father, to be obedient, what it looks like, that he walks in the Father's will, that, that he's going to die as a sacrifice for my sin and yours. And he will call us then to follow him in faithful obedience, full surrender to the end. So let's look at our text today. John chapter 12. Verses 20 to 36. So grab your Bible or if you need a copy, raise your hand. Would love to have you see the words for yourself. Follow along here with me as I read John chapter 12, verse 20 and following. We're going to read this account that happened just days before Jesus is uh, arrested and tried and crucified. John 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered and others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. 
Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard that, uh, from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And when he had finished speaking this, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, friends, here's what we're going to do. There's two things that are happening as we walk through this passage. Two significant uh, components here. First, we're going to see in verses 20 through 26 that Jesus says that the signal has come. The hour is here. And for him to be glorified. So we're going to see the, the signal of the hour has come for him to be glorified. Then we're going to see Jesus call us to walk in faithfulness, to walk in his light. Verses 27 to 36. So let's jump right in. Look at this first one where we look at how the, the hour has come. Now, go back to verse 20. If you remember from last week, if you're here with us, what just happened in the previous section is that the Pharisees were frustrated that the crowds were coming to see Jesus. They were plotting to kill Jesus and Lazarus because he's like walking, talking advertisement for Jesus's power. He had been raised from the dead. And so they, they ended the previous section in verse 19 with these words. Look at your text if you want to follow along with me. The Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, what we see here is John capturing the irony of that statement immediately by reporting how some Greeks came to see Jesus. Like the very next verse, the, uh, what the Pharisees were afraid was happening is actually happening. The world is coming. The nations are seeking Jesus. And these Greeks, they stand in contrast to the Jewish Pharisees. John puts them there side by side on purpose. Okay, the Pharisees are complaining about Jesus' growing influence. We got to stop this guy. And here these Greeks come with a simple request. Can we just talk to him? How simple their trust, their desire, their heart. And you need to know what's, what's happening in the background here because why this is such a lightning rod moment, okay? These were likely God-fearing Gentiles. And when we say Gentiles, we mean ones who are not ethnically Jewish, okay? God-fearing Gentiles who are from somewhere in the Greek-speaking world, the Roman Greek-speaking world. It's probably likely they were from the Decapolis, which is a, Decapolis means 10 cities, and it's an area in modern-day Jordan, just on the other side of the Jordan River uh, from Israel to the east. Now, it was maybe a couple days' walk to Jerusalem, and it was common for God-fearing Greeks to come to major festivals, but they were not allowed in the inner courts of the temple. On pain of death, they could not participate in the official ceremonies unless they were an official full convert to Judaism. 
Now, there was a, what was called the Court of the Gentiles, which is this massive outer area on the outer edges uh, of the temple complex. And so the Gentiles could be there, but there were signs clearly posted on the gates and on the walls leading into the inner courts of the temple that said, for you who are not Jews, you cross these gates and you will die. In Ephesians 2, if you didn't know this, if you've read Ephesians 2 and Paul uses the language of the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, this is what he's talking about. There's literally a wall with signage dividing Jew and Gentile and saying, you are not worthy to come to the living God. And so when these Greeks come to seek the Jewish Messiah, for a devout Jew in the first century, that would be scandalous. How could this happen? And so the request of these Greeks, and John is careful to note it here, it's a foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles, the, along with the remnants of, God's, of the Jewish people, under Christ, under one sacrifice once for all. Friends, it is a fulfillment, a, an allusion to the fulfillment of God's overall mission, that under Christ... God will form a family from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Amen. <laughs> That's you and me. We know this from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, for example. So Jesus, Jesus not only, John is pointing out this reality, but what Jesus does is he, he actually illustrates and, and confirms and explains this reality by using a metaphor about seeds. Now, I just love this. Okay, starting in verse 24. The illustration of seeds and crops would have been very accessible for an agrarian society. So way back then, the, most of these people would have been farmers or had family that were farmers. And so what, what, what Jesus describes is this illustration of a seed being planted, it dying, but it rising and springing up into a plant that produces fruit, that produces more seeds. See, his, his metaphor is this, that the, the vindication of a seed the exalting of what the purpose of that seed is can only be realized when it's put in the ground and it dies and then springs to life to plant and, or to make more seeds. That that seed alone left won't do anything, but you, you plant it in the ground and, and there God, in the way that he created it, springs to, to bear fruit of a multitude of seeds. Not only that it would live as its own plant, but that it would produce more. Now, in our region, okay, Jesus is talking about wheat, which maybe you go up north, there's a lot more wheat planted. But around here, people pretty much plant corn or soybeans, okay? Now, I did a little bit of research just to help you understand the prolific nature of corn, okay? So, it, 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 here's some numbers of how this works. One ear of corn, uh, it, at least in, on average, has around 800 kernels on it. So I don't know if you've ever thought of how many there actually are on there, but when you're sitting there like eating your, you know, cob of corn at 4th of July, that's 800 kernels in one ear, okay? Now, a bushel of corn, they say on average across the country, is about 112 of those. And the, the uh, Department of Agriculture said last year in 2022 that one acre of land produced 178 bushels of corn of those Years, okay? So if my, that's, that's 800 kernels 
112 ears, 178 bushels per acre. Now, if my abacus is calibrated correctly, that's 17 million kernels per acre. 17 million in one acre. See, here's the point. This kernel has the potential to yield one or two ears with 800 kernels each. And Jesus' example of the wheat is similar. One seed produces unbelievable fruitfulness. It's incredible how God made his creation. Now, some of those corn we've genetically modified, just so you know. <laughs> Maybe the organic ones are slightly different, but even so, hundreds, hundredfold. Now, here's what we, Jesus wants us to see, okay? That he will be glorified through his death and exalted through his resurrection to be the first shoot of the new creation, the first fruit of what's to come. And through him, those kernels will multiply across history. This is you and me. An exponential harvest for his kingdom. Now, this is why Jesus immediately, he's not only describing his death, he connects it as a principle to his own sacrifice. He connects that to what he expects of his followers in verses 25 and 26. So go there into the text with me. Let me just make something really clear as we look at what Jesus describes here. If you, friends, want to follow Jesus, you must walk the path Jesus walked. There's two statements here. And then a promise. Let me read. Verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. There's statement number one. Number two, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, you need to see in these two statements that there is a figure of speech happening, which is really common in the Jewish language, or in Hebrew, and, and in the Jewish culture. Now, this is written in Greek, but they're capturing something of the Jewish culture here. It was common to make statements of contrast, to put love and hate right next to each other so you could see that contrast and it would draw out the meaning of it. And so what, what Jesus is describing here is that you will either live for yourself and lose everything or you'll give up your life and you'll gain everything. Many of you know C.S. Lewis he put it this way, one of his more famous quips. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Friends, this contrast that's developed here, which thing do you love more? Which thing do you love most? What are you going to worship? It's describing the process of dying to self. It's this question. Are you willing to step off the throne of your life to see the temptations of this world as hollow and unfulfilling? Are you going to enthrone Jesus as the king of your life? And then take up your cross and follow him in the footsteps of your Savior and Lord. You see, it results in a promise Look at the very next verse. So he makes these two statements to pose this question to you. And then here's the promise. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Friends, here's the promise. You will be with Jesus where he is. 
and the Father will honor those who serve him. That you will be, if you follow him, you surrender your life to him, resurrected at the last day, raised up to join in the first fruits of what he has already accomplished. What he has done, what he has achieved as the pioneer of our salvation. You see, we were just talking about this um, yesterday in our men's group. And we were talking about 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you've never read 2 Peter 3, Peter's talking to the church. And he's saying, in light of eternity, how are you going to live today? Essentially, his question to the church. And looking ahead to that last day when evil and sin will be destroyed forever and will be raised to resurrection life. This is what he says in that chapter. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In other words, walk in faithfulness, dear friends, striving for godliness, not to earn God's favor. It is not so that you could get to the end and God's going to pat you on the head and say, hey, great job doing all those good things for me. No, he's going to look upon us clothed in Christ's righteousness and by his grace, see the image of his beloved son as we've been saved and sanctified, as we walk in faithfulness and surrender, dying to self, walking the way that Jesus walked. Now, this doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Being faithful to Christ as we walk through this world is not easy. And we're going to see that in our text here because for Jesus, walking to the cross was not easy. So we need to turn to the implications of what it means to walk in faithfulness like Jesus. So go to verse 27 now, okay? Let me read. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and they said it had thundered. Another said an angel had spoken to him. Do you see what's going on here? Okay, Jesus is, they're confronting him with what is actually going on. He says, shall I escape? Shall I say to God, take me, take me away from this moment? No, he says, dying is why I came. And yet it's not a cakewalk. It's not easy. He is in real agony at the prospect of the cross. Friends, you have to remember, Jesus is fully human. He's fully God. And in his full humanity, he is staring down his execution. And facing the cross would have been very troubling. Now, this verb, troubled, my soul is troubled, it means to cause inward turmoil, to be disturbed, unsettled, frightened, or terrified. Friends, do you understand the gravity of this? That Jesus faced the cross, and it was not like Candyland, okay? He was walking towards that in terrified and agony knowing that what it's going to cost, how much pain it will serve him, that he looked ahead at this and he says this path of death is not easy. And friends, what we should see in that is not only the glory of what he has done, but realizing we shouldn't be surprised when the path of dying to self is hard.
See, Jesus could have called upon his angels to stop everything, and he could have escaped that suffering. And we see this temptation multiple times in the Gospels. Let me draw your attention to a couple other ones, all right? In two other places, we see this reveal how Jesus is faithful where we have failed, okay? In the wilderness is one. When the Israelites failed in the wilderness of Sinai, they, they failed to be obedient to God. They had his law in their hands. And, and yet, when we see Jesus, you go to the New Testament, he's tempted in the wilderness of Judah in Matthew chapter 4, and instead of succumbing to that temptation, he turns directly to Satan and he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where Israel was faithless, he, Jesus was faithful where the Israelites were faithless, dear friends. He is the new Israel. Now, another example is, think about Adam and Eve in the garden. In the garden, they failed to be obedient to God's command. But when we see Jesus in another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, faced with the same thing, he's at the foot of a tree, and you can imagine the temptation, just say the words and you don't have to go to the cross. But Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. He resists sin where Adam and Eve failed. He's the new Adam. You see, what Jesus is all about, this is this passage, what Jesus is all about is that every word and deed, he is about the glory of the Father. His greatest concern is to bring glory to the Father, to walk obediently and to speak the words that he needs to in the Father's will, even at the agony of death. And not only does the Father affirm this with a voice from heaven, but Jesus explains the purpose of what he's doing. Pick it up in verse 30. He says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. And listen to these words. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from this earth, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Listen, there are three things happening in that statement. Three things going on. The first is he says, it is time for judgment. Friends, at the cross, passing judgment on Jesus. And the reality is that the cross is passing judgment on them. Everything's turned around. It looks like a failure. The cross looks like it's the end. But in fact, what Jesus says is, I'm going to walk towards that cross and guess what? The verdict is in. My death and resurrection signify judgment both positively and negatively. It is the dividing line now. Because on one side, when you trust in Christ by faith, you are declared righteous. And the just punishment for your sin has been fully atoned for. And your future is secure in the new heavens and new earth. Praise God. But on the other side, is for those who reject Jesus who turn their back, who walk away, who maintain and walk in their sin. There is no other hope, no other name by which you must be saved. No other option, no other fate. This is the dividing line, Jesus says. It's time for judgment. It's time for the verdict to be said. Okay, that's the first thing that happens. Second thing is he says the prince of this world will be driven out. Okay, if you, if you look at what's going on at this moment, the cross may look like triumph for Satan, but in fact it's his defeat. And when Jesus is glorified, when he's lifted up on the cross and enthroned, in fact, Satan is dethroned. In other words, game over. 
Game over for Satan. Jesus has already won. This is what he declares. Okay, that's the second. Here's the third one. When Jesus is lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. This lifted up, this word there, it has a double meaning. Okay, if you don't know how it will go when someone is executed by the Romans on a cross, they have the cross laying on the ground, and Jesus is saying, do you realize that uh, I'm going to walk to that cross, that they're gonna, he's going to lay down on that wood, and the Roman soldiers are going to say, stretch out your hands, and they will nail him to that piece of wood. And what happens is that they will then put a stake in the ground, and they will, by ropes and pulleys, lift that cross up physically from the ground to be in an upright position in mockery as a public display. That they post a sign above his head, this is the king of the Jews. But Jesus says, you realize that that moment when they physically lift me up on that wood, wooden cross is actually my exaltation as the king, as the savior. It is the moment when the lamb who was slain is, is the one who's worthy to open the scrolls will triumph over sin. That this is his, in his death, that, that, that all evil and everything that is against God and all sin, that is, it is atoned for by the willing sacrifice of the sinless lamb of God. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Friends, this is the glory of Christ, the shining moment when he's glorified and when the glory of the father is displayed. It's displayed through his death and resurrection. And this is why Jesus talks about light at the end of the passage. I love how it ends. He says, well, first of all, they say to him, how can you say the son of man, you know, is going to be lifted up? We don't understand what that means. He doesn't even answer their question, which is very typical of Jesus in the gospel of John. He just says, listen, walk by the light while you still have the light. In other words, I'm going to be gone. Like bodily, Jesus will ascend. See my light now and continue to walk by my light and you will not be overtaken by darkness. This is the challenge to his followers. That, that we also, we need to live in the reality that we're secure in Christ. That when we face difficulty, we're firmly rooted in the fact that in his death and resurrection, the verdict is in, the prince of this world is defeated, and all people will bend the knee to Jesus. That's what we stand secure in. Oh, friends, that we would walk that way of the cross, dying to self, faithful to the end. Okay, let me tell you a, a story of what this can look like or illustrate it from one of the earliest examples in church history. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And Smyrna was a large city on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And he was born in 69 A.D., now, Polycarp, as a young boy, was a student of the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. And as Polycarp got older, he was one of the last people who personally knew the Apostles. Now, toward the end of his life, persecution had become really intense. And in Rome, they were taking Christians to the Colosseum to, to kill them for their faith. And at the age of 86, Polycarp is on a visit to Rome, and he had a vision that, that he would be burned at the stake. 
And so he refused, though, to leave Rome. All of his friends and his colleagues, they're begging him to leave. They're saying, get out of here if that's what's going to happen. And his words were, God's will be done. Three days later, he was arrested. Now, the Roman guards who came to arrest him, they came prepared with horses and weapons, and they come knocking on his door, and he answers the door, and he says, come on in, and he gives them food and drinks, and he serves them lunch, and he says, hey, can I, can I go and pray for a little bit before you take me away? And these guards, they're just blown away. Okay, they say, sure, you know, go ahead. He prays for two solid hours. He's praying for the soldiers. He's praying that God would help him to be faithful. He's just communing with the Lord, knowing what's coming. The soldiers were amazed at his steadfastness and faith. Now, they, they took him to the Colosseum. They dragged him before the proconsul, and they threatened him with death if he didn't renounce his faith. And this is what the proconsul said to him. Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortunes of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Now you have to understand, the Romans called Christians atheists in the first and second century because they didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods. So you didn't believe in the pantheon? Well, you must be an atheist. That was their way of thinking about it. Now, what I love happens, now imagine, this is in this massive arena, and there's crowds there who had been clamoring for him to be brought before them. And what happens next is that Polycarp, instead of, of renouncing God, or renouncing Jesus, he gestures to the large crowd in the stands, and he points to the throngs of people, and he says, down with the atheists. <laughs> now, the proconsul, of course, is a little agitated at this moment. And he says to him, Swear, renounce Christ, and I will set you free. And listen to his response. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, but then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire that is coming in judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring on whatever you want. Whoa. They prepared the stake. And as the Roman soldiers went to fix his hands to the Wood with nails, which is common to prevent them from escaping while they would light the fire. He says, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. I like this guy. <laughs> and as they were striking the match to light the fire, Polycarp cries out, I give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. Sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life. 
And friends, when the flames roared from the piles of wood surrounding Polycarp, something miraculous happened. Those who watched recorded what happened, and they said that the fire rose like an arch around him, and it was like a sail that was full of wind, like the wind was blowing black the, back the flames, and the flames never touched him. It was surrounding him, but not burning him. And after the fire burned for a while, the Roman guards are getting really upset about this whole thing. And they tell the executioner to go and take a spear and pierce his side. And when they did that, the, the, those who were there said that a dove flew out of the gash in his side and flew away. And the blood that spilled out extinguished all of the flames. Needless to say, the crowds were shocked. Friends, when we hear stories of this, and this is one who knew John, the very first generations of believers who said, I'm going to be faithful no matter what comes. They're walking the way of Jesus and saying, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to not renounce my Savior, but to bring glory to God in his name. Faithful to the end with such, such steadfastness and courage. I pray, Lord, that, that for us as a church, that we would be ones with every fiber of our being, no matter what we face, that we would say what Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Walking as in the light of Christ, centered on the gospel as children of light in a very dark world, come what may. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. As we have learned in this passage, you, by dying and rising, have made it possible for us to have new life. This exponential harvest for your kingdom. Lord, thank you that we are counted as recipients of your grace. We're unworthy. And yet, you have given us new life in Christ. And like that seed dying and rising... Lord, let us walk the same path that you did. Now, your sacrifice once for all helps us to understand what it means to walk faithfully, to sacrifice our lives, to die to self, to love others as you have loved, and to tell people about what you have done. Lord, we're so thankful. I pray that we would just glorify you in singing about your holiness and greatness this morning, and that we want to walk the same path that you have. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.